Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we are doing Homo Deus by Yuval Noah Harari, A Brief History of Tomorrow. So, about 12 months ago, we did his first book, Sapiens, which was A Brief History of Humankind. Uh, And then we skipped Homo Deus and we did his newer book, The 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. And now we're, we're doing, as you say, mate, The Brief History of Tomorrow. So Yuval really hit those two books for six, which we both really enjoyed them as well. And I think this is no different. Another really incredible book that really looks at us as a species, what we're going to do in the future. Yeah. So he talked about the past in Sapiens. He talked about the the very close present in terms of the, the next hundred years. And this is sort of the, the future of, of humankind. And he kicks off the book with the new human agenda and how it, it is going to change in really fundamental ways to what we have been for the millennia as a species. Because for thousands of years, at the top of the list of all our concerns, were always famine, plague, or war. Now, these have not been completely solved yet. Like, they're not 100% gone, but they're well within our control. They've, they've gone from incomprehensible, uncontrollable forces of nature, and we've now made them into manageable challenges that we can deal with. The first one, say famine. So during the last 100 years, technological, economic, and political developments have created an increasingly robust safety net. So there's really uh, a nice safety net that separates humankind from the biological poverty line. Uh, yes, there are obviously still people who are, who are hungry around the world, but it's definitely a manageable challenge and we're definitely tracking in the right direction. If people are going hungry, it's not because of our ability to feed them. It's almost always certainly due to human politics rather than some of the natural catastrophes around the world, uh, which were the reasons it was so in the past. The second big challenge, which really isn't a problem anymore, is plague. And I was really surprised with some of the numbers here because it's absolutely wild. He said, after famine, humanity's second greatest enemy was plagues and infectious diseases. I didn't realize, but in 1330, there was the Black Death which we've heard about, but I didn't even realize the numbers. Between 75 million and 200 million people died from it. So in England, 40% of the population died. And in Florence, half its population died. And the Black Death here wasn't even the worst. So when Europeans settled into Australia, for example, they brought in all these new infectious diseases, which the natives and the aboriginals in, in town had no immunity to. So for the aborigines, when, when the European settlers came, 90% actually died. So in 2050, we're going to face new germs, but the medicine in 2050 is likely to keep up and track these new medicine. Yeah, most certainly, man. So we've famine is sort of under control. Plague is nowhere near the, the level of, of fear that it, that it used to be. And the other one is war. And that from all the way back from the Stone Age, from the Arctic to the Sahara, everybody on earth knew that at any moment, some kind of uh, close neighbor might invade and try to take over the territory rape their wives and daughters, take over their land, slaughter all their people. Uh, but it's sort of uh, thankfully heading in the right direction and that's probably not uh, an obvious possibility anymore. Oh, mate, can you imagine that? Just sleeping in your tent and then every night at any moment someone could come past and torch mm. your tent and put an axe through your wife's yeah. head. <laughs> yeah. That sounds pretty brutal. <laughs> it was, possible, <laughs> it was yeah. it was. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and this is what Yuval calls the law of the jungle, you know, like the idea that you're in a jungle and at any moment, you could just be torn apart by your own species. So, in agricultural societies, war killed as much as 15% of all deaths. But during the 20th century, violence was 5% of all deaths. And now in the 21st century, it's less than 1% of all mortality. Yeah, he said that uh, in 2012, 
620,000 people died due to human violence, but 1.5 million people died from diabetes. So he says sugar is far more dangerous than gunpowder in, in the modern world. The whole reason war has slowed down at such a fast pace is because the main source of wealth around the world is no longer minerals and resources where you'd go in and create some kind of war just so you could jump into Iraq and take all their oil. Yeah. But today, all, all of our wealth is actually in, in the knowledge field. Yeah, if you think that in the past, if you could take somebody's land that you could then grow agriculture on or if you could take somebody's gold mines or their oil fields, these were things that you could physically take and then if, if you were able to win the war, you could uh, benefit enormously. But if you think of, say, you know, Silicon Valley, you can't go and take over Silicon Valley and all of a sudden you own all of these things and you have so many resources under your control because the resources have completely changed. They're no longer physical. Now their knowledge is more powerful. So say if you're China, you're sitting there and you want a piece of the US, and as you said, it makes no sense to go and create war in Silicon Valley, but it makes a lot of sense to actually create trade and find some win-win scenarios between the two countries. So China has earned actually billions of dollars from Silicon Valley by cooperating with them, with high-tech giants like Apple and Microsoft, and what they do is buy their software and manufacture their products instead. Yeah, so as, as you said, so over the last hundred, hundreds of years and thousands of years, these three massive concerns for humans, this famine, plague, and war, they've all been uh, sort of brought under control. And so it's sort of like, well, if, if all our three biggest concerns are gone, what are the three things, or not necessarily three, but what are, the th- what are the things that are going to replace that? Because we need to be striving towards something. So us as a species, we've got a whole lot of creative power within us and... Now that we don't have to focus on those things, we've really unlocked a whole gamut of new solutions that we can put all of our energies into. So he says it's like firefighters in a world without fire. We need to do something. We're not just going to be content sitting around and you know being stable and being comfortable where we are. We need to find something else to do with ourselves. So now that our world is healthy and prosperous and harmonious, now that we've got rid of famine and plague and war, what's going to demand our attention and our ingenuity next? So now we've, we've secured these unprecedented, unprecedented levels of prosperity, health and harmony. He thinks and he speculates that humanity's next targets are likely to be immortality, happiness and divinity. So the first one there being immortality. So he says that obviously that's just the physical limit of humans is after you know, 70 to 100 years, we're going to cark it. But now that we've solved some of those big challenges, this could be the next big challenge that we turn towards. How do we solve this problem of immortality? So humans don't die because someone in a black coat just comes up with some black magic and just tells you your time's up or God chooses you're up or because mortality is an essential part of the cosmic plan. Humans actually die always due to some kind of technical glitch that actually is an engineering problem that can be solved. For example, the heart stops pumping blood or the main artery is clogged up by fatty deposits or cancerous cells spread to the liver or germs might multiply in the lungs. And what happens to cause these technical problems? Other technical problems. So the heart might stop pumping blood because there's not enough oxygen to reach the heart muscle. Cancer cells spread because a chance genetic mutation rewrote their instructions and the germs spread to the lungs because someone sneezed on the subway. So in each of these cases... It is something that's solvable if you break it down. Yeah, if we're viewing all of these causes of death of a specific physical, tangible, technical glitch, then if we can get to the source of that problem, we can probably solve it. And there are people all around the world working on some of these things. So in 2009, 
Google appointed uh, this dude called Big Bad Bill, and he presided. <laughs> Is that what they call him? No, I call him Bill Maris. Oh, I'm sure he's a bad boy. (laughs) So, he presides over all their investment funds and uh, he actually said, it's probably likely that we can live to 500. And so, he's put his money where his mouth is. Google Ventures has invested $2 billion into life sciences to fight against death. So, people like Big Bad Bill, people like Ray Kurzweil, they're saying that people today, uh, if you've got a healthy body and a healthy bank account, there's a genuine chance that you could have a serious shot at immortality over the next 50 years or so. Yeah, absolutely. There's really no promising market than this idea of eternal youth. So, imagine if you were sitting right now and you're Warren Buffett and you're 80 years old and someone goes up to him and says, all right, we can make you feel like you're 50 years old. I think Warren Buffett would be happy to pay really any amount Mm. to add 30 years on his life. Mm. So, for those who solve some of these technical problems, there's a huge market to be had. There's an infinite amount of uh, return that you can get on on solving these issues. Most certainly. So, mate, I'd be pretty happy if they could achieve that, I reckon. I'll be down for that. Hopefully, they make it affordable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so, that's the first one is immortality. The second one is happiness. And uh, what Yuval says is that, uh, you know, in the in America, you know, we've got the, the right to the pursuit of happiness, but he says it's actually sort of almost morphed in our minds. No longer that we have the right to the pursuit of happiness. We believe we have the right to happiness, full stop. So, we all feel that we deserve to be happy all the time. And it's something that we've really been striving to achieve this everlasting happiness, um, you know, through economic growth and increases in wealth and there's no doubt that, as we were saying before, that contemporary people are far more satisfied than our ancestors in a lot of ways. But it's at the same time a very ominous sign that due, despite all this high prosperity, comfort and security, the rate of suicide is actually going up in all of the developed world. Yeah, and he even says that the rate of suicide in the developed world is actually far higher than in traditional societies who haven't got caught up in this uh, constant growth. But what he says is, uh, again, linking it back to a, a solvable problem, is that according to life sciences, happiness and suffering, they're, not, they're nothing really but a different balance of body sensations. So there's you know, the different types of chemicals that are flowing around in our body is what determines whether we're happy or not. We're not reacting to the external events of the outside world. What we're reacting to are the sensations within our body. So if we lose our job, that doesn't inherently lead to sadness. What is, leads to sadness is the unpleasant sensations in our body that come with that. And if the other side of the spectrum, say if you got a promotion from your job last year and right now you're just in that same position and you haven't had that same promotion, um, the, pres- the very pleasant sensations you got last year on hearing the news has really disappeared now. If you want to feel those wonderful sensations again, the only way to do it is you need to get another promotion. And then you're also going to plateau again. So you need another promotion to get these great feelings of endorphin just flowing through your brain. But you might end up far more bitter and angry if you remain just a humble, humble pawn. Yeah, so he's saying that, okay, we've got these different chemicals within our brain and these, the different things that are happening within us are the things that determine our mood then perhaps we can you know, biohack our way to happiness. So if science is correct and if our happiness is determined by a biochemical system, then there's probably a way of rigging that system in our favor. And this is what the life sciences has really been leaning towards doing. So forget economic growth and getting jobs and uh, as the way to raise your happiness levels. He's saying there's no reason why we can't just manipulate the human biochemistry in the first place. And you might seem this is ridiculous, like, you know, 
why just give a whole bunch of people ecstasy 24-7 and they're just extremely happy. But a lot of the stigma with psychiatric drugs um, have really been broken since what they were a long time ago. So for better or for worse, a growing population is taking psychiatric drugs on a very regular basis, not only to cure debilitating illnesses, but also to face more mundane depressions and the occasional blues. So it sounds like we're definitely again heading in that that direction. So as just to recap, we've already we've sort of solved famine, plague, and war, and now we're on the we're on the track to immortality. We're on the right track to happiness. And the third new goal is probably the loftiest is divinity, and that's to become the gods of planet Earth. So this upgrade to become gods can follow any of three different paths. The first path just comes down to biological engineering. And this is basically your big bad cyborgs and the engineering of non-organic beings. So this all starts with the insight that we are far from realizing the full potential of organic bodies. So for 4 billion years, natural selection has slowly really made us who we are today. And that means that we're still in the direction to go somewhere, which might take another million years. But there's no reason why we don't have to wait for that long with some of the recent advances in, in biological engineering. Yeah, so as as you say, we've we've gone through this uh, slow and gradual evolution to get we to where we are right now. But it would be uh, foolish and very arrogant to think that this is the final stop uh, at the train station. That there's no way that we could possibly improve ourselves any further from here. So that's where some of this uh, engineering is heading towards. In again, further upgrading ourselves. And again, moving towards the, the gods gods of the planet. So, upgrading genetic code, we rewiring brain circuits, altering biochemical balances, and even grow entirely new limbs. Mm. That'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Matt, that would be next level. What would be the first thing you'd, you'd grow? <laughs> <laughs> Mate, <No>. you're making <laughs> points here. <laughs> you probably, could probably guess where the, the first thing I'll seek in there. Yeah. What, an extra arm would probably be handy. Two of them or three? <laughs> so you say you'd have two or three of them or what? I think two would probably do the job. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> you'd be a man in demand if that was the case. Allison would be you'd on have the to get the, You'd have to get the angles right, but I think it could, I think it could work. Hey, let's yeah. not go. That's a bit of a season, season two <laughs> comment. <laughs> hey, what's, the, what's the second way we can do it? Uh, <laughs> is it cyborg? And a different way is to, you know, building, becoming like a cyborg. So obviously... Uh, beyond the biological upgrades, we could have some of these almost mechanical upgrades or technological upgrades that we could add add to our bodies. And all of this sounds like science fiction and it's just ridiculously speculative, but it's actually already happening at the very early stages with some of these technologies. For example, monkeys have recently learned to control bionic hands and feet disconnected from their bodies through electrodes planted in their brains. And that's today. So, you know, we're talking over a pretty long time frame and how fast things are progressing. He reckons potentially a cyborg doctor could perform emergency surgeries in Tokyo, in Chicago, or even on a space station in Mars. Hmm. Man, that is next level. And the third big one is to acquire the divine powers of creation and, and destruction. So, this is where the title of the book comes from. We're upgrading from... Homo sapiens to Homo Deus. And breaking out of this organic realm could also enable life to finally break out of the planet Earth. So for 4 billion years, again, through natural selection and evolution, we've only been really able to take on planet Earth and nothing else. But once we break out and, and we can do this inorganic approach, then we can really just start traveling the cosmos and partying in space. 
Yeah, so these are Yuval's predictions of what our most important goals are going to be moving forward now that we've solved some of those bigger issues of, of, of days gone by of famine, plague, and war. Now we're aiming towards things like immortality and happiness and divinity. Now, of course, these are uh, obviously just his, his predictions, and this is what he says. These are the things that we will try to achieve in the 21st century and beyond. These are not necessarily things that we will achieve or succeed in achieving, but this is what we're going to at least have a, have a solid crack at. That's an important distinction. They're not important because they they, some of them do sound ridiculous, but these are the things that we're actually going to strive for over the next 100 years. And um, you know, if we get there, it's going to be a completely different world. And if we do upgrade to Homo Deus, he says, whether you're a devout Hindu cricket player or an aspiring journalist, if you've got some part of the population who have really upgraded to these other people, you're going to feel like a Neanderthal hunter in Wall Street relative to these people who have moved into Homo Deus territory. The next part of the book really gets an understanding of our momentum in, in the context of history as we're moving forward, really looking at how we conquer the world. And we are moving fast because in one sense of the world, we've got this depiction of nature with which is full of these fantasies of like a Simba in The Lion King and Shere Khan's in Jungle Book and all big bad wolves on our planet. But really, all of these myths, mythological stories are really disappearing at a really fast rate. The world is now basically populated by humans and their domesticated animals and there's no more Shere Khan's and Simba's really out there. Yeah, and in Germany today, uh, which is where the book The Little Red Riding Hood came from um, with The Big Bad Wolf, uh, there's actually less than 100 wolves in Germany. And if you compare that, there's actually like 5 million dogs in Germany. So the, the wild wolves have disappeared and now the human domesticated animals have, have taken over. And the same as, you know, if you look in Africa, there's less than 40,000 lions compared to 600 million house cats around the world. And there's 900,000 African buffalo compared to 1.5 billion domesticated cows. So at present, across the whole world, more than 90% of all of the large animals are either humans or animals that have been domesticated by humans. We've entered a whole entire new epoch in, in the world. So we're right now in the Anthropocene uh, era and no species in history has really been able to influence how the global ecosystem actually functions. Yeah, if you think of these little bitch chimpanzees from hundreds of thousands of years ago that have evolved to become us now and we've literally taken over the whole planet, that's some serious momentum over the last um, you know, 70,000 years and uh, that, that's really put us in a strong position to what comes next, moving towards Homo Deus. So over this time, as we've really got to the position where we are now, with the way we, the entities we worship has really upgraded and changed as we've moved along. So in the agri- agricultural revolution, it gave birth to theist religions and then the scientific revolution has given birth to humanist religions. When we were you know, playing in the fields, we'd be praying to the gods to give us rain or we'd be making sacrifices to uh, make the land more fertile uh, and hoping these gods would bring prosperity towards us. But now after the, the scientific revolution really did away with that, it's given birth to these humanist religions. So we've shifted from the gods to focusing on humans and what we can control. So these humanist religions are things that are just made up. It is common stories that we all end up believing. And because we believe them, this is what gives these stories and these religions power. So these are things like liberalism, 
communism, Nazism, capitalism, anything like this. And it's that Homo sapiens have some unique sacred essence that is the source of all meaning and authority in the universe. That's at the core of humanism. So these human humanist religions really allow us to rationalize some wild shit. So theism, for example, we could justify traditional agriculture and have animals parading the lands in the name of God and we could sacrifice them there. But all of a sudden, humanism, we can justify modern industrial farming in the name of man, meaning we can allow cows and pigs and everything get slaughtered and go through really unimaginable pain and suffering throughout their whole life just because it's in the name of man. So this is how we rationalize a lot of the stuff and the really awful things that are happening around the world. Yeah, this new industrial farming, uh, you know, these that are, it's all about the, the capitalistic side of it, about having the most, most bang for the buck, the most uh, output for the least input. It really sanctifies the human needs and has no interest whatsoever in the animals. It's almost as if, you know, we're humans and because we're humans, we're at a level completely above the animals that are on it. They're, they're lesser beings. And so just as you say, Matt, we can do anything in the name of man because we are now sort of a, of a humanist tilt that the animals have become completely second class. He kind of hints at this scary thought of, you know, how we treat the low animals so poorly and what's going to happen if Homo Deus eventuates and if you're not part of the train that jumped on Homo Deus, how they might treat Homo sapiens because mm. it is really unimaginable. And humanism really is at its core is bombarded with a barrage of human slogans cancelling us. So, you know, you probably hear it every week and every day without realizing it, but people are telling you, you know, listen to yourself, be true to yourself, trust yourself, follow your heart, do what feels good. Um, I hear that a lot. Mm. You know, someone wants to go on a holiday or buy a nice watch or something, oh, yeah, oh, treat yourself, do it nice. And it's, it's all at this core, this idea of humanism. Yuval says that history is always shaped by the small groups of people that are looking forward, the innovators, rather than the masses that are always looking backwards. So say 10,000 years ago, most people were hunter-gatherers and there was a very small minority of the innovators and the pioneers in the Middle East that became farmers. And of course, the future belonged to those farmers. Now he's saying that in this early 21st century where we find ourselves now, the train of progress is pulling out of the station again. And he says it's probably the last train to ever leave the station called Homo Sapiens. And if you miss the train, you probably won't get another chance. So in order to get your seat on this train, you need to understand 21st century technology and in particular, the powers of biotechnology and computer algorithms. So he says these powers are far more potent than anything that's come before. And you know the power to control bodies and brains and minds and engineer these things and shift them and shape them that's going to give you some serious power. And he says that the gap between those that can do these things and those that can't is going to be a far bigger gap than we saw from the Neanderthals to the Homo sapiens. The next part of the book that really covers this momentum, but also some of the challenges that are coming from our momentum is the idea that we're reliance on infinite growth on a finite planet. At the moment, for politicians and economists and the people in charge, I guess, it's all about growth. We always want growth. Uh, if it starts to look like growth is stalling or even uh, there's a recession, then, man, whoever was in control there did some serious, made some serious errors because it's all about growth. So he says that 
you know, there's three principal reasons as to why growth is vital. Firstly, when we produce more, we consume more, we raise our standard of living and live a happier life. So obviously, we want to have a happier life, so we need to produce more and consume more and grow. Secondly, as long as humankind multiplies, economic growth is needed even just to stay where we are. If there's more people, we need to raise the overall level just for it to stay uh, where we are. And thirdly, we need to grow the pie in order for the poor to, to drag them up sort of to, towards our level. So growth is no doubt a really bloody good thing and we need growth. But you know, now in the 21st century, uh, you can really think that the economy can't actually just grow forever indefinitely at 3 to 6% or whatever and just keep going on infinitely. So you got to think, how the hell are we going to find this new areas of growth? Because won't we actually eventually run out of resources? So to increase this perpetual growth, we need to somehow discover an inexhaustible store of resources because we can conquer new planets because things like this are just way too far away. So we got to look at the three different areas we can grow the economy, which is raw materials, energy, and knowledge. With each passing generation, science so far has helped us discover new sources of energy. We've created new ways of creating energy. We've also discovered new raw materials, and we've also enhanced the way in which we could use and harness those raw materials, either with better machinery or better production methods or better uh, scientific techniques. Uh, but with almost, I guess it's, you know, because the, they are physical, tangible things, it's getting harder and harder to maintain that same rate of growth forever. So humankind finds itself locked in really a double race. On one hand, we feel compelled to speed up the scientific progress and economic growth for really good reason. There's a billion Chinese and Indians who don't want to live in the Delhi slums and watch their, you know, their cousins die of hunger. They want to live like middle-class Americans, and they see no reason why they should put their dreams on hold and sacrifice some of these dreams when the Americans are unwilling to give up their SUVs and their shopping malls. So that's on one hand, we need to do that. But on the other hand, we need to stay at least one head of this ecological Armageddon, which is going to cook us all. But managing this double race and these two goals that really are a zero-sum game in a lot of cases uh, becomes more difficult year by year. Because every time we get someone from that Delhi slum dweller and get them closer to the American dream, it brings the planet one step closer to the brink. In 2015, they set some ambitious targets around uh, the Paris Agreement, which calls for limiting temperature increases around the world to 1.5 degrees. Uh, Of course, some of the most important and most painful challenges have been postponed until after 2030. So we know that in order to achieve this, there's going to be a little bit of pain. There's going to be some hard things that we need to do, but uh, we'll just kick that can down the road. We're not going to do it now. Let's uh, let the next generation deal with it. Absolutely. It's essentially just passing on this hot potato to the next generation whilst a lot of politicians try and look like they're doing things green while the heavy political price of reducing emissions and slowing growth is bequeathed to all the future administrations and future generations. It's probably a good move, yeah. You'd be like, oh, yeah, I care about the environment. Let's sign off this agreement. It'll start in 2030. <laughs> so you're like, yeah, you're the, you're the man. You've, uh, you've signed us up. Yeah, let's, let's go green. <laughs> but you don't have, actually have to suffer the... Uh... Yeah, you're a duck, man. I am. <laughs> hey, they're all doing it. It's a good move if you want to stay a politician. Yeah. Not a good, good move, move if you want their... to fucking do some shit. No, it's not a good move for us. It's a good move for them and for their, their position. So a lot of people with the control of the CEOs, the presidents and the prime ministers, and a lot of them are really rational people. 
So why the hell are they willing to take such a gamble with the potential ecological disasters that might be around the around the horizon? And what Yuval says is one of the reasons might be if bad actually comes to worse and it really hits reaches that point, the billionaires and the rich people and engineers could build a high-tech Noah's Ark for really the upper caste and leaving all us billion losers just to drown in, in the aftermath. So the people who believe in this high-tech arc, which they might subconsciously in the back of their mind, shouldn't be in charge of the global ecology. It's for the same reason that those who believe in their heaven afterlife shouldn't be in charge of nuclear bombs. The next big section of the book is we're starting to look forward. So we've talked about where we are now. We've sort of looked back to see the momentum that we've developed. Now we're starting to look forward a bit. And this section is all about algorithms. And that algorithms, it's a... It seems like a, a technological thing, but Yuval is saying that all organisms are actually algorithms as well and that we're very much dictated by these pre-built algorithms that we probably aren't even aware of. If we want to understand our life in the future, we should make every effort to understand what an algorithm actually is and how they're connected with emotions. Like We know simple algorithms. If you want to calculate the average, you just add two numbers together and or add a whole bunch of numbers together and divide it by... And all the numbers that the total number of numbers that you put in there, and all of a sudden you got an average. Similar thing for a complex recipe and so forth. But a lot of us don't really see the more complex things around the world as algorithms, but they actually are. Like even the example of you sitting there and drinking a cup of tea, that is actually an algorithm for you to reach that point of drinking a cup of tea. Yeah, he says that whilst you know an algorithm could be like a recipe for how to bake a cake, you need a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Uh, cook it for 40 minutes and you get this out the other end. Like our emotions are very much an algorithm as, as well without us even realizing. So he uses the example of you know when a, a, a woman sees George Clooney and thinks, wow, he's gorgeous. It's very, it's very much the same thing as when a peahen sees a peacock and thinks, oh my goodness, that's a phenomenal tail. I wouldn't mind a piece of that. Uh, so it's, it's, it's an inbuilt algorithm that we don't even know is going away, but we've almost got this recipe in, inside of us that subconsciously we see different features in the world and it gives us an emotional reaction. So it's a really, it's an algorithm that's been created through millions of years of evolution. That person isn't really choosing to see, um, that woman isn't looking at George Clooney and choosing to do it. There's something in the brain that kind of measures George Clooney's health of the sperm, maybe not to that detail, but <laughs> subconsciously, potentially, because that's what it comes down to when it comes to evolution is really understanding the reproductive possibilities. And so these algorithms that are obviously built within us, we're, we're also making some phenomenal algorithms around the world that can really give us great insight into what's happening. So like say, you know, if, if Google could read all of our emails, I suppose I say if, they say they're not. I reckon they probably are. <laughs> but yeah, if, if if they were to read our emails and follow activities, uh, it would really make it a lot easier for them because they've got all this data. They could work out things before we can even work them out ourselves. Like say, for example, they might be able to work out that there's a, an epidemic brewing, say like there's a, a big flu sweeping the UK. And they could probably tell that because you know maybe they see in people's emails there's pe- more and more people emailing in sick to work. Or they might see people's Google searches What's the best medicine for a cold? They, they'd be able to see these things and how it's... How, hang on. For this week, all these things are spiking all at once. And using these algorithms, they could work out, oh my goodness, we're about to get smacked with a, with a big bad flu epidemic. Absolutely. There's a huge upside for us just sharing our data with things like Google because the way the UK Health Service currently 
finds out about flu epidemics is they have to do a really expensive exercise of aggregating all the reports by doctors, which all of a sudden just aren't done quick enough. Mm. But Google could really do it instantaneously as it's happening as a live live feed. Another thing you can do, you can get your DNA and your saliva read and find out your your predisposition to more than 90 different traits and illnesses that you might have down the track. So in a lot of ways, if you're willing to share your data, you can actually let algorithms help you in the decision-making process to really optimize your life in a lot of different ways. Another example he gives would be like say Waze, for example, or you know Google Maps, Apple Maps, uh, that Waze could divert you away from heavy traffic because they've got this real-time feed of data knowing where all of the other cars are at the same time, where everybody's heading and how long it's taking. They could uh, on the fly direct you to the quickest possible route. But beyond that, if Waze knows your personal preferences, they might realize that you don't actually want the quickest possible route. Maybe you want the most scenic route or maybe you want the route that uh, will in turn give the least pollution from your car. So there's all of these different things that with the data as well as merging that with your own personal preferences, they can really give you the best possible outcome for you personally. Another really speculative piece of technology that might arise through understanding the human brain as an algorithm is transcranial stimulators. And this has already been shown or already been produced by robo-rats in the laboratory. So what they do is they plant sensors in the reward parts of the rat's brain and they basically just let them fire up and the bra- and the rat is running around left and right like a remote controller by the people just firing up those parts of the brain. That's pretty crazy, man. That's very crazy. And it's obviously if it if it's working for rats, then it's not too much of an extrapolation to think that it could definitely work for us as well. He says some ways we might actually use this kind of technology if you got control over your brain. Say if you wanted to go out and learn the piano or the guitar, but you find yourself you're always, you know, getting up to grab a few beers and just watch the television instead. If you can control your brain chemicals, you might go uber focus and then let this part of the the brain really fire up that makes you really excited to do the piano and get really productive. Mm. Yeah, so it's not necessarily uh, at this point yet anyway. It's not necessarily giving you the skills on the piano, but it's giving you the ability to sit down and focus and want to play the piano as opposed to wanting to go watch the footy on the couch, yeah? I think, yeah, that's exactly right. I think that's an, that's another category. Someone could solve that problem um, and people can eliminate procrastination because no mm. one likes doing it. Mm. Yeah, there's a huge market for that as well. The final section of the book is all about homo sapiens in the 21st century. So what are the big things that are happening in the not-too-distant future that are really going to impact us in the short term and lead to these big long-term changes? The first thing is the idea that liberalism is going to become obsolete. And there's basically three different developments that are going to come that's going to eliminate this belief that we've had for really centuries and that is really ingrained in our human life today. The first is that humans will lose their economic and military usefulness. So rather than having some kind of inherent value of humans, you know, whether that's economic in terms of being used in the methods of production or military usefulness, all of a sudden we might lose that altogether. The second is that the system will continue to find value in humans collectively but not in unique individuals. And the third reason is that the system will find value in some unique individuals, but these will constitute to a new elite of upgraded superhumans rather than the mass of the populations. We are in danger of, of losing our value because if more and more tasks 
that humans are currently doing are being automated and you know even in in wars if wars are becoming firstly less prevalent but then secondly uh, there's less reliance on actual people to fight these wars and maybe they're technological wars then what do we have left not a whole lot so the whole idea of liberalism was really born from the French Revolution in the famous document, the Declaration of the Rights of the Man and the Citizen, you know, that everybody has equal value and equal political rights, but that's actually being eliminated, as you said. So it's con- kind of convenient that this declaration was made because the powers that be really wanted to get the most economic value and military value out of every human being, but really the people who are in control now has no use for the new useless class that he says that is going to be around. So, as an example, think about, say, uh, the use of AI in terms of medical diagnoses in that if uh, an AI, like, say, like a Watson-style AI, is able to assess you quicker and more effectively than a doctor, then rather than having one doctor, you've just got this one AI that is really infinite. It's available 24-7 all over the world. So, even if it costs... You know, hundreds of billions of dollars to make work over the long term. That's going to be a lot cheaper than training tens of millions of doctors uh, across every corner of the world. And so we're at this risk now that if AI can start achieving all of these things that were previously human tasks, we we build this thing that Yuval calls a useless class. So if you've got no economic value, you've got no military value. What have you got left? Yeah, perhaps not not lower class, but an entirely useless class. Imagine being branded part of the useless <laughs> class. <laughs> that kind of suck, wouldn't it? The second thing we're, we're going to be really looking to do um, speculatively is upgrading the rich. He's got a story here where it's been relevant recently with Angelina Jolie, obviously a superstar celebrity with a lot of money. She spent three grand on genetic testing and she was fortunate enough to find out that she had a real a gene that had that showed she had a higher, very high risk of breast cancer. So she got a mastectomy and reconstructive treatments and all of that to avoid the prospects of having cancer and early mortality. But not everyone is Angelina Jolie and has got access to these technologies. There's billions in the world who are, who are earning less than $2 a day. And even if they worked impossibly hard their whole life, there's no way they could save up money for, for this kind of surgery and treatment. At the time of writing, the uh, top 62 richest people in the world had a combined wealth uh, that exceeded the bottom half of the world, so the poorest 3.6 billion people. So that's a serious uh, concentration of capital for 62 people to have the same amount as 3.6 billion people. And in the 20th century, a lot of the improvements were aimed at dragging up, I guess, the bottom of society, you know, like trying to uh, eliminate poverty, trying to spread things like uh, malaria treatments to the most susceptible or most vulnerable in in the world. But Yuval is saying that potentially there could become a tipping point where instead of uh, aiming at the bottom, we start aiming at the top and then trying to improve the top of the world, the richest people taking on some of these uh, improvements to elevate them beyond homo sapiens. So the idea of upgrading the healthy is really an elitist project as it rejects the idea of a universal standard applicable to all. So all of a sudden, there's not this base standard. It means everyone can reach different levels because some people are going to want superior memories, above average intelligence, and some people want to, you know, you might want to be a weapon in your bedroom to go along with your two dicks. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But it's it's a real shift from 
uh, in the past thinking, okay, there's this basic level that we should try our best to bring everybody up to this basic level because there's probably no way of exceeding uh, a really high level. Now, if there's a there's these new technologies that we can implement and think, okay, well, maybe we can go beyond what we used to think was the upper ceiling. Maybe our focus shifts from trying to help the needy and bring them up to a basic level. Maybe it shifts to thinking, man, there's so many possibilities. Forget about them. I'm just going to try and do the best for me. Yeah, absolutely. And imagine the countries where it's going to be the worst, like India and Brazil. And say if these countries are trying to compete economically with a country like Japan in the future, so in the past, it made sense to upgrade the, the, the lower class to come up so you can compete as a country and you've got more people producing more stuff. But in future, it might make more economic sense rather than upgrading the lower class, you might be better off upgrading the rich. Mm. So you have a few homo deus kind of running around who are super smart and producing all this knowledge for your country as opposed to all the lower class. So, you know, there's no point in upgrading the lower class potentially in the future yeah i suppose in it's a harsh one to think about in in theory in the past if it was all about quantity if it was about the number of people who were able to fight wars or who were able to work in factories to produce a lot of things obviously it made sense to target the lower class but now if they're saying that maybe it's not so much quantity maybe it's more quality maybe it's the top of the top that are the people who are creating all these innovations and it probably does make more economic sense to focus on making them as best as they can be i think that is a trend that happens in a lot of industries or even the military so rather than have thousands of soldiers running in with guns or swords or anything like that now they've just got a few drone operators Mm. with a whole bunch of weapons or you might have a few sas soldiers and navy seals to do all the work so you're really just left with a whole a few upgraded elite Mm. kind of performance rather than the rest yeah, it's probably not a not a pleasant one to think about, but that's just sort of one one suggestion that Yuval makes. And the the third big suggestion that he makes is the idea that power is going to be decentralized. Power will no longer fall in the hands of of a few specific leaders, but in fact fall to things like data. So data processing conditions are really changing again in the 21st century like it has in the past. So democracy might decline and even disappear. As both the volume and speed of data increases, things like elections and political parties and parliaments, they may become obsolete. You know, in some parts, you know, you might think they're uh, not necessarily because they're unethical or people lose faith in the system, but just because there's a, a better way of doing it. Technology is really moving so fast that all the parliaments and the dictators alike are really overwhelmed by the data and they're really incompetent in managing the speed of progress. Um, like there's been the Australian politics recently. It's just ridiculous. I couldn't imagine Scott Morrison or um, Anthony, I think it's Anthony Albanese, the other one. I couldn't imagine them keeping up with any of these new technologies and how fast the world is developing. And I'm sure it's the same in the US and it's the same in the UK and all over the world. So government has really become mere administration. They're not really there to provide grand visions like uh, you know Kennedy saying we're going to the moon or anything like that. The government is just basically just your administrative helper. So what they're saying is that the at the rate at which we're going, there is going to be... Uh, some kind of power vacuum in that the current leadership uh, and the current power can't possibly last the way it's going it's not going to be any more effective so there's going to that's going to disappear and there's going to be a vacuum but of course Yuval says 
any vacuum doesn't really last for long. Something is going to fill that void. So saying that the, we need to work out what is going to fill that void and obviously we want to make sure something good fills that void. So that's really getting now to the end of the book. And a lot of this has been extremely speculative. Um, you know, as you said at the start, it's the, it's one way we're going to strive for, not necessarily things we're going to achieve. And that all of the everything we've said in this episode should be understood as possibilities rather than these prophecies. Yuval says that if you if you don't like the sound of any of these possibilities, then you're certainly welcome to think and behave in new ways that will prevent them from materializing. This book we've traced from our origins through to our present day, and he's given an insight as to where we might be headed next. And it really is an eye opener. It's up to us to decide: is this the way we want to head, and is this the the train that we want to jump on, or? If we're not too happy about it, how can we act to start to change the track? Mate, I don't want to. I don't want to stay stapian anymore. If there's a if there's a train, <laughs> on. <laughs> if there's a train going to Homodeus, would you jump on if there's a say a fifty percent chance of of death? Yeah, I probably need a bit more info, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's all the info you need. <laughs> 